So thanks for joining this session. Um, it's an extended session than what, what was originally planned. Uh, the session is going to be uh, two parts. So this is the OTT state of play. Uh, the first 60 minutes we have is a panel discussion with represent representatives from Netflix, Hulu, and Amazon Video. Uh, so that'll be 60 seconds uh, for 60 minutes. And then after that, uh, we'll be joined on stage uh, with uh, Alex Dunlap, who's a general manager of AWS Elemental. Uh, he'll be talking about the new media services that we launched uh, early this morning from AWS Elemental. So just to explain who I am, uh, my name's Lee Atkinson. I'm a solutions architect for AWS. I work in the media entertainment practice within the UK and Ireland team based in London. Uh, so joining us on the stage, we have Vinod Vishnawathan, <laughs> uh, Director of Media Cloud Engineering at Netflix, Robert Post, VP of, en of Engineering for Hulu, and then Winston on the far left there, of my side, far right for you, the Global Head of Digital Video Playback and Delivery for Amazon Video. So welcome everyone. Welcome. Thank you. Um, so just to start off, could you just explain uh, your roles in your respective uh, organizations and how you see innovation, uh, especially around the OTT uh, market. Uh, Vinod, if you start. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm Vinod Vishwanathan. I'm Director of Media Cloud Engineering at Netflix. So what my team does is provide storage and compute infrastructure for all of media processing for Netflix. That includes... Uh, in Can you hear me now? Hello? Is it better now? Yeah, I'm Vinod Vishwanathan. I'm Director of Media Cloud Engineering at Netflix. And my team is primarily responsible for providing storage and compute infrastructure for all of media processing for Netflix, which includes images, streams for our website, and also the innovation platform to support uh, uh, streaming innovations and also provide the scale to keep the Netflix catalog current with all of our innovation. Great, hi, I'm uh, Robert Post, um, VP of Engineering at Hulu. Um, my teams are responsible for the end-to-end -end technology for our content and advertising businesses. Um, I've been part of Hulu for a long time. I was there before Hulu was even called Hulu, so that's about 10 years um, uh, running. And I can't think of a more exciting time to be part of Hulu than now. Um, in addition to our thriving VOD business, we've just recently launched a live um, product. So as a consumer, you'll have uh, access to 50 live TV streams, um, including your local affiliates, um, national channels, regional sports networks, and whatnot. In addition, uh, I manage our ad platform team. We've built our own ad server at Hulu. Uh, we deliver personalized ad experiences uh, throughout all of our different products. And prior to Hulu, I was at uh, Microsoft. I was working on the Windows Server team, responsible for distributed file systems, and shipped several versions of uh, uh, Windows Server there. So I'm happy to be here today, tell you a little bit about what we learned, and talk a little bit about the future. Thank you. My name is Winston. and. Uh, Within Amazon Video, I head up a product tech organization. And our group is responsible for broadly three different areas. One is Amazon Video Security. And the other one is Amazon Video Operations Excellence. The third group is the core video playback and video delivery. 
In simple terms, this group is responsible for all the aspects of the media, which is video, audio, captions, end-to-end, -end, for both live and video on demand globally. So if you take that to a level deeper, that is uh, for, from a, both live and VOD perspective, it is a signal acquisition from a live perspective. And for VOD, it's all the content encoding, content packaging, um, encryption, rights management, policy enforcement, as well as the delivery of the video from our content origin to our customer's location, wherever they are globally. So we build systems for quality of service measurement. We build systems for playback optimization. And again, there's a lot of innovation going on in the space to continually innovate to provide the best experience for our customers, irrespective of their network conditions. As you know, the internet is pretty congested and has got its own uh, problems. But as a service provider, we have to provide solutions that overcome those and provide a seamless experience for our customers. And then we build our own video players as well that go on the different platforms. So we have player teams that uh, build players for the iOS platform, the Android platform, and the range of living room devices and the web platform as well. In terms of innovation, a lot of innovation going on. I would concur with Rob. I think it's a very interesting uh, time in, uh, in the transition, in the uh, evolution of the entertainment industry, how consumers are consuming media and uh, how consumers are, uh, are, uh, are watching content through different devices and uh, the watching patterns are also changing in the industry. I think being in the crux of that and uh, being able to innovate both for VOD as well as live, as you probably know, Amazon Video uh, is streaming Thursday Night Football in our service, and we did ATP, which is a tennis tournament as well, recently. And uh, so a lot of innovation going on across the board and very exciting and uh, very excited to be here. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Um, so the first question, uh, I'll start with Rob. Um, there's many different specifications around metadata, structure, content, uh, the file transfer of those between yourselves and partners, uh, between many different types of codecs for video and audio, uh, the packaging, uh, the containers and protocols and delivery. Um, and we seem to always have many different uh, competing standards. Um, how do you approach different standards uh, choose the standard that's appropriate for you, and, and how do you think the future is with specifications? Sure, that's a great question. Um, first and foremost, as an aggregator and also a distributor of content, we like standards. We, we want to be able to do things in one way on every kind of interface that we have throughout the, the value chain. Maybe let's break the question down a little bit um, in regards to ingestion, then maybe encoding, and then maybe delivery. On the ingestion side, um, we have a pretty large VOD business. Uh, we take video basically in several preferred formats, but, but honestly, this is an area that I can control. I, I, I have a team to, to work on this, and we'll often take things from content programmers that they have sitting on their digital shelves, um, just to make uh, the integration with them a little bit easier. Um, but we do have preferred formats there, um, ProRes, MPEG. Um, on the live side, we take a transport stream coming directly out of some head end, either from the programmer or even an affiliate station. Um, on the metadata side, we use a proprietary um, format, actually, for our metadata. Uh, remember when we started this 10 years ago, there weren't a lot of standards available at that time. Uh, we have also adopted a cable lab spec uh, moving forward on the VOD. Uh, for live, we take out-of-band uh, uh, SCUDI 224 metadata. Uh, that is the ESNI uh, spec. 
And we've seen here that there is a lot of different interpretations of, of that spec, um, and it's pretty early. But from the integrations that we've done with programmers today, we feel like this is something that can help us with the audience definition, help us with all the um, metadata that we need to know about what's coming on channels in the future, as well as what we're playing right now. Um, so we believe that this is probably the spec moving forward, but we think that there needs to be a little bit more uh, lockdown on some of the, the, the interpretation of the spec itself. On the encoding side, we're uh, on the VOD world, we're an FFmpeg shop. We've had a lot of experience and a lot of um, team members on the team kind of digging in on FFmpeg quite a bit. Um, we've made a lot of modifications and sent some of that upstream as well. We do everything in H.264, although we do have a lot of uh, HEVC coming onto the platform soon. We have a pretty extensive um, uh, evaluation platform for how we test uh, different protocol or different uh, codecs. Um, here we're looking at both the subjective and the objective video quality and kind of comparing that to our library. Our library is a little bit different than all other libraries and we want to make sure that we're choosing the right codec for what we're making available to our users. On the delivery side, we were early adopter of MPEG-Dash. Uh, we believe that um, this is the best container format for um, ourselves as a distributor, CDNs, and also the consumer electronic folks. So we'd like to see more adoption there across the board, but of course we do um, also support other uh, delivery formats like HLS. Winston? Uh, yeah, from, from an Amazon video perspective, obviously we have a very large number of partners, over a thousand partners that we integrate with for uh, acquiring content for the different businesses that we support. Obviously we have our core prime video business, we have our transactional business, and we also have Amazon channels. So in terms of the number of partners that we integrate with globally, we obviously have a clear specification for onboarding content. And uh, historically, we've used our own proprietary format, similar to what Rob, uh, code, uh, Rob mentioned, because there were not many standards out there. In the last, uh, more recently, we have adopted the Movie Labs um, Media Core, Media Manifest Core, and Media Entertainment Core uh, standards for the ingestion of metadata, as well as the asset definitions. We also use the um, Movie Labs uh, EMA avails format for the, all the avails definition as well. And we see us uh, adopting that more, uh, working with our partners. And uh, our goal at the end of the day is to reduce friction, reduce friction with our partners. And I think this is not a space that there's a lot of opportunity for innovation. I think it's an opportunity for simplification. It's an opportunity to reduce friction so that we can onboard contents uh, in a pretty seamless manner thereby increasing selection that we can make available for our customers. And uh, we uh, also support the cable labs format because there are partners that uh, only support uh, those standards. When it comes to the actual uh, media itself, obviously we support a range of formats for the video and the audio and the captions. And here again, our goal is to reduce friction with our partners and therefore the, the tech teams have a whole range of formats to support but at the end of the day, from an integration perspective, it becomes easier for our partners to interface to submit their content to us. Live is a totally different game. Um, apart from the, the format itself, uh, where we acquire the content, how we acquire the content, over satellite, over fiber, where do we cross-connect, uh, how do we ensure that we get a reliable stream 24 by 7, or if it's for a game, for the period of the game. And that comes in with a lot of architectural definition and uh, engineering efforts which unfortunately at this point is very fragmented, and there's a lot of upfront effort that needs to go in to, to be able to, to define that integration and onboard a specific partner to a platform. In terms of the delivery formats, very similar to what Rob said, Dash, 
Uh, we are an, uh, an early adopter of Dash as well. We are migrating most of our streams to Dash, and obviously we use HLS for the Apple devices. And uh, I think uh, uh, there's a lot of innovation that goes on from an, from an encode perspective, and how do we optimize the visual quality? How do we ensure we squeeze more bits? Because uh, as we go into uh, uh, countries like uh, uh, where there's bandwidth constraints, we need to ensure that our encodes are very efficient, still providing a good visual quality for our customers. And uh, the packaging formats are obviously different, and uh, we use Dash and HLS pretty heavily. Okay, thanks, and Vinod? Uh, <clears throat> so Netflix has a, a very good input specification because we want the best quality assets, uh, the original assets in terms of the aspect ratio as well as the frame rates and so on. So we have the best quality assets and we support a few different formats uh, like what uh, Vincent was saying for all of these assets. And uh, our specifications uh, uh, <coughs> call out very clearly how, how to deliver to a what service, and uh, uh, we want the original artistic intent to be reflected in the source materials. And also, uh, our tight input specification makes it very uh, little more easier for us to do the processing, because we do all our encoding on commodity compute on EC2, and storage is uh, S3. And having good input specification helps us because our processing pipeline to do the encoding and deliver the output is, is kind of staged, where the first stage is uh, a deep inspection of the assets coming in. So we kind of use our specifications, we have built inspections to make sure that the quality of the input meets what we expect. And if we find issues with the source, we just reject those source so that it doesn't go into the encoding process. So the encoding process is uh, very little more deterministic in that sense because all the bad inputs get uh, rejected. And we would expect our vendors to re-deliver those sources. And that makes their systems much more stronger as they deliver more and more content to Netflix. So in terms of uh, on the source side, uh, we like IMF as a specification because one of the things that we have seen as an aggregator is the difficulty in acquiring these assets. Uh, because there is a lot of uh, versions out there for uh, different purposes, broadcast, airline, where, uh, where they have been, secondary assets have been confirmed with them. So uh, we have seen the issue, what we call as version items, where uh, it's sometimes difficult to get the, uh, the right source uh, material coming in. So we are looking at IMF as a good way for the inputs to be uh, delivered or even archived uh, because it makes it easier that you have a uber set of assets and then any versions that you do at that point in time uh, you are just passing the instructions to make up the asset and not really delivering which means if you have five or six versions you are not having six copies of the assets and making your vault very difficult but you are having one uber set of assets and you have six instructions to make up these uh, different versions. So we are taking deliveries of 4K and uh, uh, UHD content through IMF, and we also favor IMF for our HD and 2K deliveries, and we also take ProRes and MPEG as well. And part of what our inspections also make sure is that we can do 
uh, chunk parallel processing because we do all our encoding in software and we bring the scale uh, because we can do the processing in parallel, which means we can chunk the source into uh, smaller chunks, a group of frames or a few seconds of video and we can encode all the formats that we want and all the bit rates and all the chunks in parallel and then assemble the inputs together. That's how uh, our pipeline works. So the inspections are also running in the same chunk model. So uh, irrespective of the size of the, uh, or the runtime of the video, we would be able to inspect them uh, kind of in, in constant time. And similarly, our encodes are also uh, on constant time. And we, uh, we do all our encoding prior, we DRM the content, and then we package them, and we have a few different codecs because Netflix supports a wide variety of devices, and we want an efficient encode for each one of uh, those device or device categories. So we do what is needed to make sure that we can get the device reach. So we support a few codecs, and we continue to see that. In terms of innovation, what we are seeing is uh, the new codecs which are coming up, which are much more efficient when it compressing 4K or, you know, we don't, who knows what's going to come later. Uh, that's one. And within Netflix, we are doing a lot of innovation, like the per, per title uh, ladders, where we look at the complexity of the content or even portions of the content to figure out what is the right amount of bits that we have to uh, provide. And uh, a lot of our innovation is going to be in much driving efficiency and making sure we are giving the best possible quality to the customer irrespective of uh, the environment they are in, the devices they are in, and the bandwidth constraints that they are facing at this time. Okay, thank you. Uh, on to the next question. Um, traditional TV broadcasters tend to be focused on a particular region, whether that's whole country or whether it's, as in the US, you have affiliates in uh, small regions across the country. Um, your services uh, may go over multiple different, these different regions. Uh, what are the technical challenges of both working across multiple regions, but also you also receive content from different uh, partners across the world. What are the challenges of receiving content from these different partners and performing services such as translation and subtitling for in, uh, different languages as well? And I'll start with Winston. Yeah, as of uh, <clears throat> prior to December 2016, Amazon Video was primarily serving five countries. And as of December 2016, we have been serving our content, we have a service that's a global offering to our customers everywhere in the world. And uh, obviously that comes with challenges, that comes with exciting opportunities as well for innovation to be able to deliver content to customers literally across the globe. And um, it's, it's been an interesting journey. And I want to just highlight four key areas where there are obviously many, many areas of challenges, but I want to highlight four areas. The first one, obviously, is what you already mentioned, right? It is uh, you need to localize the content. If it's just one language, it's not going to be interesting for customers in different countries. So in Amazon Video, we have, obviously, multi-track audio. So we need to have uh, the local, uh, local audio languages, uh, local audio as well. And we also have local uh, language subtitles. And um, this, in itself, poses challenges in terms of how we receive the content for the different languages from our partners. Obviously, you may not receive everything at the same time, so your delivery processes would change. How we acquire content may have to be through different post houses or different partners, 
And, and this has to be done in a, in a global scale and yet focused on the regional requirements. And uh, obviously your workflows and your operational processes will all have to be tuned to be able to adapt to this model. And uh, we have built systems, we have built operational processes and uh, procedures that actually help us to be able to scale to offer our service globally to our customers. So first one is localized languages in the form of audio and uh, subtitles. The second one is uh, policy management. When you offer content globally, obviously the policies that need to be enforced are, all, are actually local. You have rights issues, you have uh, rights issues at the title level, and in some cases you might have rights issues, rights requirements at the, at the uh, audio track level or even subtitle level, because a certain audio track may be available in a certain country, but it may not be available in a few other countries. So uh, your policy management system, your policy validation and enforcement systems need to be localized, localized as well to be able to figure out exactly where a customer is coming from, what the appropriate policies are for that specific title, for that specific language, and being able to, to deliver the content to the customer in a seamless manner. The third challenge is around customer experience. When you have 40-odd languages or more languages with subtitles and audio and different policies to be enforced, your discovery and your search mechanisms need to be tuned in with how the different policies are enforced. Else it's going to be a very fragmented experience, it's going to be disruptive for customers. So we have focused a lot in terms of how do we ensure that we provide a seamless experience for our customers to discover content and consume content no matter where they are in the world. The fourth one is obviously delivery. And delivering this content globally is not easy. Uh, we live in a country here where the network conditions are pretty good for the most part. And as you go outside, as you go to different parts of the world, the network conditions are different. The uh, bandwidth conditions are different. The network variability is different. And how customers pay for data is also different. And you need to take all this into account as you plan for the, the delivery model and what experiences do you want to provide in, the, uh, in, your, in your players. So from day one, we have implemented bitrate switching heuristics and, uh, and delivery algorithms that are tuned for specific countries, tuned for different network conditions. And this is where machine learning and, uh, and algorithm development are critical. As you look at different network conditions, we have a volume of data, but being able to look at the data and be able to, to tweak your experience and optimize the experience so at the end of the day, the customer actually gets a very seamless, clean experience, irrespective of the network conditions. And uh, yeah, so delivery is, uh, is, is an interesting challenge to overcome with uh, uh, building the platform on AWS using the global S3 architecture. We have origins that are distributed across the globe. We, we work with multiple CDN partners, obviously, including AWS CloudFront, which is the largest CDN partner. And uh, uh, being able to distribute the content with local caches and regionally distributed origins makes the overall distributed architecture pretty interesting and also provides the best experience for our customers. Thank you, and Vinod? Yeah, I think uh, Winston pretty much nailed all the important ones. So one thing I want to call out is, uh, uh, let me start with the same thing. Uh, first is localization that's very important. Uh, we don't like that subtitle assets or text assets are called secondary assets because in many ways they are the primary assets if you are not speaking the language or you don't understand the original audio 
uh, subtitles become very important. So sourcing good subtitles uh, and making sure they are rendered nice, they are readable, uh, they are not on people's faces, they are not on other text, how to make sure that the subtitle experience itself is uh, very good. And as a global company, uh, we are just not looking at Latin languages, we, are look at, uh, we have to look at Asian languages, bi-directional, you have like uh, uh, horizontal and uh, vertical text to deal with how to effectively render them. And some of the languages have the accents, the rubies and boutons, and you need to make sure that you are handling uh, the subtitles uh, very well. So there is some work to be done on the specifications, TTML2 and IMSC2. They have to come along to make sure that there is a good way for uh, global subtitles. That is something Netflix takes very seriously, and we even won a technical Emmy for the work we have done around subtitles because it is just, uh, it is just not text assets. There's a lot of work that needs to go in to make sure that the subtitle assets are sourced processed and presented in an ideal uh, fashion because it would make or break the viewing experience for a global uh, product. And uh, uh, pretty much uh, once, uh, then you have the audio and you have to make sure that you have the dubs, like Winston said, they can come in uh, different times. So for Netflix, even uh, localization, one is a scale challenge because when we want to localize in any language, we have to get a lot of content localized. And it is also for us a latency challenge because we are doing shows like uh, Chelsea Handler, which is the talk show where we had to localize that uh, content uh, in 20 languages within uh, 12 hours because we like to launch titles day and date or the same day uh, across the world. So for us, it's uh, also uh, the compressed time frames because that's not something the industry is uh, used to doing. So we have done a lot of innovation in building tools to uh, help us through the process. We even uh, have a product called uh, Hermes, which is most likely, which is mostly a tool where uh, people who are localization experts can come and they get tested, they get uh, they get a score and they get an ID and we can track uh, what is the, uh, the talent pool available and how can we even project the work that we need to do to get this uh, localization done. So there's a lot of work still to be done to make the subtitling uh, and text asset processing much more efficient uh, globally. And the other part is uh, streaming. Definitely, that's another place Netflix is investing in heavily in innovating is to make sure we have efficient streams because bits don't necessarily mean quality. So we have built our own quality scores called VMAP, which is what we are using to make sure that we are presenting the right encodes and we have most efficient encodes and we are providing a best quality for people. And the other part is also is Netflix builds one product, so it is one service which has to look, behave, and operate uh, in many different products, not just the streaming, just the discovery aspects of it. So those are very important and challenging, so any innovations or improvements we can do with image processing, because a lot of discovery on the Netflix site is images, so a lot of innovation can be is going to happen in that space as well, so we can have the product behave the same way uh, across different uh, regions. 
and then the content delivery, right? Netflix has a content delivery team and uh, uh, we have done a lot of work to make sure that we can efficiently distribute our content globally and give the best possible uh, streaming experience uh, for the customer. And also we build our product uh, on Amazon, we run it on Amazon, so we use the Amazon's global uh, capabilities for us to run our service uh, also globally. So we have learned a lot in terms of how to uh, run a global service, how to monitor, uh, how to handle failover scenarios, the whole chaos engineering. So there's a lot of gone in to make uh, this product uh, a global product. So I think this question is pretty broad uh, because there's, it covers all aspects, right from content to the product, uh, to the ingest, encoding, across the board, you need to work on things to make a global product. Okay, thank you, and Rob? Yeah, I, I don't have too much else to add. I think, uh, I think that was a pretty good um, summary from, from everybody else here, but I will say, you know, Hulu today is a US-based only service, so that kind of limits some of the exposure that we have to, to several of these problems, although we do, um, acquire a lot of content from overseas. We have very, very large Korean drama um, libraries as well as anime libraries. And here, our goal is uh, always to try to acquire the content in the original audio um, that it was presented in or that it was created in and then provide English language subtitles after that. Um, in the anime world, we, we do have quite a bit of dubbing, um, but oftentimes when we were trying to kind of link the videos and kind of reuse the same video and switch the audio streams or even just, you know, align captions or, or, or subtitles, we found that a lot of the video was different. Um, small little edits, small little cuts uh, here and there, which can actually throw off the, the viewing experience and then it creates a huge problem. So in, in the cases where we do have uh, dubbed language, uh, we are ingesting it twice um, for the time being. Um, additionally, um, the other area where we focus on at least uh, like targeting to, to Geo is with the live product and, and the local affiliates. So if you're in New York, you should be watching the New York um, ABC feed. If you're in Los Angeles, you should be watching the Los Angeles CBS feed. And there's a lot of targeting that needs to happen in order to make that possible. There's also a lot of like audience definition that goes around that. I think this is an area where we're spending a lot of time to make sure that we're able to target the right affiliate to the right uh, uh, users. And if you're traveling and, you know, should you be able to watch the, your home sports game if you're on the road? There's a whole bunch of, like, uh, rights restriction stuff that goes into it of the policy definition that, that Winston was talking about. And here, there's a lot of, like, innovation to be had in trying to ensure that you can obfuscate a lot of those challenges to the user, at least in the product. I think at the end of the day, um, you don't really care. Um, you really just want to watch the shows that you love and, and the sports that, that you love. So we try to obfuscate most of that through the product. Um, but the internet wasn't really designed with geography in mind when it was doling out IP addresses. Um, but uh, so that makes it challenging to just rely solely on IP lookup. Um, we do use that, we do, we, but we do use it, a few other signals to help us with that. If you're a part of the live service, we, we do now ask for GPS enabled on mobile devices to help pinpoint your location a little bit better. Um, but all in all, that's an area where there's still more to be uh, done in order to, to make sure that we can really target to uh, like a, uh, an advertisement to you in a certain zip code. Um, so there's a, there's a lot there to, to still continue to be done. Um, but yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, moving on, uh, next question is, uh, viewers have a high expectation of 
the audio uh, and, the, and the video quality of the content that they watch. They expect the content to be resilient and uh, no buffering and also low latency. Uh, late, latency can be two things. If, if we think about video on demand specifically, uh, users expect the first uh, time to the first frame to be as, as short as possible to watch that content and not rebuffer. Uh, for, for live content, uh, you have this glass-to-glass -glass latency. So when uh, a goal is scored, for instance, they expect to be able to see the content quite, quite soon after. They don't necessarily want to see the, uh, the goal scored or hear the goal scored bit on social media. Um, how do you optimize uh, the ingestion of content, the processing of content, and the delivery of that for, for, for these three uh, important requirements from users? And the question is to Vinod. Uh, so, the, for Netflix, uh, of course, live doesn't apply right now, so we are mostly uh, uh, what play. Uh, play delay or the start delay and rebuffers are two very important things for us as part of the quality of experience metrics, right? And the other aspect of it is the quality of the streams that is being delivered to them. So whenever we do any innovation, we make sure that we don't sacrifice the QAE when we are doing uh, improvements to uh, our, on bitrate savings so that what we are looking at is a holistic experience is that you get great quality and as well as the great experience associated with that, uh, with that playback. So in terms of... Uh, uh, in terms of the, uh, what we do to achieve that uh, is one is uh, we make sure we look at, we don't allocate bits uh, based on a standard ladder. For, uh, we basically, we don't treat each content the same. We look at the complexity of the content and we make sure that we produce streams where each uh, additional stream in the ladder is definitely bringing uh, noticeable difference in quality. So the quality score that we have built, which is, uh, uh, which is more of perceptual quality, and that has helped us drive that forward so that we are uh, good stewards of the internet, that we are one-third of the peak internet traffic, and we want to make sure that the, the bits we provide uh, offers meaningful uh, quality for our customers. So, and we do a lot of innovation around in, the in that area. And our next generation of encodes are going to be more about uh, providing bits based on the complexity of the scenes or portions of the content. So it, these are much more uh, efficient. And whenever, and we do a lot of A-B tests in Netflix. So whenever we want to try out new things, we need to make sure that there is no quality of experience degradation across the board. So we do a lot of testing to make sure we uh, covered devices, network conditions, uh, that these streams are very, very efficient when they get out there. Great. Rob? Yeah, we know uh, customer expectations are high, uh, especially in, in the live world, but, but for VOD as well. Um, we focus on it every day. Um, basically what we do is we collect uh, telemetry on, on several key metrics uh, from the, the, the players themselves. Um, every playback stream, we're getting feedback on uh, several key metrics, including uh, average bit rate, uh, time to video playback, um, video playback failures, and also rebuffering ratio. 
So we're monitoring these in almost a real near, near real time kind of um, a way and, and kind of inputting that back into our CDN selection algorithms to try to deliver the best possible experience for that customer at that time. Um, it's easy to detect when we have problems with, with delivery uh, because we'll see these metrics go out of, um, of their normal operating ranges and we'll try to divert traffic somewhere else um, in order to uh, alleviate that for the customers. Um, we've been finding though that this is a more a, um, a larger kind of surface area that we need to be optimizing on and we've stood up some teams uh, focusing on like MBR algorithm research, um, we've been focusing on our encoding, um, making sure that we are using our bits uh, appropriately as Vinod was saying and working towards kind of creating the best quality with the least amount of bits. Um, other things that I can talk of specifically in, in the live world is um, there are definitely challenges here. We don't have a lot of redundancy in signal acquisition paths or encoding paths or even delivery right now, and that's something that we're working towards. Um, there are still problems with uh, the internet uh, that kind of create um, a failure over here that can cascade uh, to the user at the end, and having these redundant paths kind of uh, make it a little bit, make us a little bit more fault tolerant to, to those things, and, and we're working towards that now. Um, other big areas that we've seen, um, especially in the live world here, is around how do you monitor and how do you get alerts on these things. So when I said earlier that you have access to 50 channels as a viewer, what that means on the back end is I'm managing about 800 different channels because most of those are local affiliates. I can't really have a broadcast operations team watching uh, 800 different channels just looking and waiting for something to happen. So we've been migrating towards a more of a, a nominally based alert detection uh, system whereby if something's outside of the standard operating procedures or outside the standard operating metrics, uh, our team will get alerted, we'll, do, uh, we'll dig in and we'll do a full incident um, you know, management of, of something that might be happening on one affiliate in, in Omaha, Nebraska. So this is an area where we're getting our PhD really fast in, in how to operate um, a live service and uh, in this one area where I think we're gonna see the most innovation uh, in the short term. Okay, thank you, Winston. Yeah, let me talk about uh, VOD first. Uh, when it comes to VOD, I think uh, Vinod pointed out uh, there are broadly three, three aspects from a QoS or quality of service that we look into actually very deeply and on a very, very frequent basis. One is obviously the what we call as interrupts. Interrupt could be a, a rebuffer, a spinner, or a fatal error. Second one is the quality that's being delivered, the visual quality the customer is getting. Again, there are different levels of that. It's the perceived quality, it's the HD bits, and now we have 4K. Like how many 4K bits are we giving to a customer for a given bandwidth condition? And uh, the third one is the time to first frame or playback start time. And honestly, the customer doesn't care. Customer wants all three. And if you look at this, I view this like a, as, a, as, a, as a tripod, right? You can, you, can, you can deliver SD quality to a customer and give them great time to first frame and a great uh, reliable stream, but that's not what the customer wants. They want the best across all the three. And I think as engineers, as product owners, as service owners, it's our responsibility to continue to innovate along those three tracks and continue to uh, improve the quality of our encodes, reduce the size of the the uh, fragments that you're delivering, improve our algorithms for, uh, for figuring out the right uh, fragments to download and serve to the customers, the buffer duration on the devices. And, uh, and, uh, and we also look at this as a closed loop system, right? We have the encode optimization and the encoding processes. 
you have the delivery optimization and the delivery systems for delivering the bits over the internet, through CDNs, through the CDN balancer algorithms, and a whole slew of other optimization systems that we have on the back end that are primarily taking the bits from, from the origin to the customer's device. So that's the back end delivery systems. And the third part of the closed loop system is the, are the actual players, the video players that we build and implement on the devices. And, I, and we do look at these three as working in tandem. They're working in a closed loop system providing data back to each other. And uh, I think in a, in a good closed loop system, providing data back and a feedback loop in place, you can optimize and continue to improve. And it is a continual improvement process. And the internet will continue to be more congested because there are more bits being streamed uh, over the internet and uh, more customers are coming online. And I think uh, we have an exciting, challenging uh, future ahead to be able to optimize performance for our customers. When it comes to live, there is a fourth parameter we need, to, we need to look at, which is the latency or the broadcast latency. Customers do care about the first three that I mentioned, but they also care about how much am I behind the, the broadcast feed or the, uh, the cable operator feed. And again, as engineers, we need to ensure that it is as close or better than the broadcast feed for us to provide the best experience to our customers. So I'll give a, a quick rundown of how we thought through this when we uh, launched Thursday Night Football. And we've been doing live, uh, live linear channels from December 2015. But uh, earlier this year, not early this year, actually in Q3 this year, when we launched Thursday Night Football, when we got the deal back in Q1, we, we, uh, there were broadly two areas, apart from building all the functionality for ad insertion and, and how do we acquire the signal and how do we deliver at scale, there were two broad tenets that we had in mind. One, reliability, and two was latency. And we felt that these two were super critical for us to provide a good sports experience for our customers. For sports, obviously, a second rebuffer is actually a second probably of the best play in the game that you missed, or you're behind, or you lost, or whatever it might be. So our goal was to provide a seamless, clean, clear experience for our customers when it came to reliability. So we had to, we had to work with our partners right from the truck at the venue. How do we get the signals? Do we have the right level of redundancy? Do we have the right, right architecture in place to be able to get the signal in a seamless manner, video, audio, captions, end-to-end -to, to the customer's device? And Thursday Night Football is streamed globally, and we had customers from over 180 countries who stream our content. And uh, so we had to ensure that reliability is very high. And reliability can be made very high with the right level of redundancy across the architecture. And uh, again, this is not something that can be thought through towards the end of a project. You need to think through this right from the beginning, right from when you're defining the architecture through the implementation, through delivery. Latency is the same way. You need to tweak every single second. And we had conversations about, should we do this? Should we, should we invest in implementing a certain feature or a certain architecture change to get two seconds? And our answer was yes. It's going to be hard. It's going to be painful but we had to squeeze every single second or every single, every single time that we could get out of the entire workflow in order to be able to provide a low latency stream. I'm very pleased that we were able to provide a pretty, pretty low latency stream. And there's a lot of opportunity ahead. And it's quite exciting that uh, we can do live streaming, OTT, over the internet, to uh, several devices with a pretty good quality. And uh, there's a lot of opportunity ahead. A lot of innovation in progress, and uh, I think it's exciting times ahead. Okay, thank you. 
Um, next question is around artificial intelligence. So we've already mentioned artificial intelligence a little bit in the previous questions. Um, <coughs> it's, it's quite common to think about artificial intelligence, its natural place, I guess, is within recommendations and things like that. But across the whole media supply chain, it can be used in many different areas. Um, I just want to get your, um, how you're using artificial intelligence in your organization, and where do you think that will, uh, where that's heading? And I'll start with Rob. Sure, no, I, <clears throat> I really like this question because it is uh, focused more on, on, on the media supply chain. I guess when you normally think about machine learning, you're thinking about what's happening in the reco world or personalization or even search in some, in some cases. And the, the value prop of the media supply chain is to gather the base metadata in order for them to work on that. Um, but you know, we do that already. We collect the factual, the semantic, and the programming. Think of like maybe the scheduling information of what's on next um, for the entire catalog on the service. And we kind of organize that and, and kind of make that available to all those downstream partners. Um, but if you take a step back and you think about it, every really interesting product experience that you can think of that connects a viewer with content that they love requires like great metadata. Not just like good metadata, you need like really, really good metadata in order to tie these two things together. So it may not be enough to know that Tom Hanks is in that movie, you might need to know exactly when he's coming into frame. And you know, these are some of the things that are not accessible or you don't have access to this type of metadata from the programmer or even from third party data sources. Um, so how do you get it, right? So you can either do it manually, which I don't think anybody thinks it's a great idea, but it, it can work in a pinch, um, or, or you try to do it programmatically. So we have utilized some techniques in order to get some of this information programmatically, and, and one is around delivery of the ads. So in many cases, we're inserting and doing dynamic ad insertion directly into some VOD piece of content. We want to make sure that we're inserting it at the right point that doesn't interrupt the, the playback experience. So we have computer vision going through and looking at where the chapter breaks, <clears throat> excuse me, um, where can I place an ad? Where's the natural place to put an ad? And we don't even really want just second granularity there. We want frame accurate granularity of where these need to be. Another area is, is where the end credits start rolling. So the end credits roll, identify those end credits so you can have like a squeeze back experience and start to present more recommended content to the user at that time. Both of these are done with <clears throat> computer vision type solutions. Um, Another is uh, we have a face match uh, detection algorithm, so we can find when Tom Hanks has that cameo on SNL. We know the exact time code of where he's coming into the frame, and we do then provide this data then to the downstream teams, and they integrate that into their reco and whatnot. Um, we also made an investment in, uh, in a company called uh, the Video Genome Project uh, through an acquisition where we're trying to gather a lot more semantic data about content. How did it make you feel? Uh, things like this that can also drive towards better recommendations. And we're piping that through our recommendation services now and kind of creating more of that base metadata for them to be able to work on. But here we're kind of trolling uh, social networks, trying to find um, user sentiment of shows, um, and kind of collecting that and organizing that for those downstream teams. Okay, thank you. Winston? Yeah, I think Rob touched upon all the key aspects from a supply chain perspective. And I think this is an area where there is, there is more innovation ahead. There is more opportunity ahead to be able to provide an innovative experience, an interesting experience for our customers. I think even if you look beyond the core metadata aspects, just from an encode perspective, I think there is a lot of opportunity there as well to be able to look at the encode and see what is the right profile, 
what is the right encode profiles that we can apply for a specific content or a specific scene. We know they already touched upon scene-based encoding, and there's a lot of machine learning aspects that we can uh, employ to be able to identify aspects of the scene, aspects of the title, to be able to figure out the right uh, uh, profile for encoding that in turn is going to provide a better experience for our customers. And going further down the chain, you also have delivery optimization. There is a lot of data that we gather in terms of customers' quality of service metrics. We know exactly the bandwidth that they have. We know their network conditions. We know their, uh, their, the actual experience they, they experienced the previous day, the previous session. And therefore, there's a lot of data that we have that, uh, that in Amazon Video, we use the data to figure out what is the best heuristic treatment? What are the best CDN, um, CDN paths that we can provide for a customer in order to optimize their session experience so that they can have a seamless, clean experience? I mean, Amazon has invested very heavily in AI and ML. Amazon Video continues to invest, and recommendations and search is a key area as well. And as you mentioned, there's innovation and opportunities across the board to, to use ML and AI in order to provide a good experience for our customers. Okay, thank you, Vinod. Yeah, uh, Netflix has been using ML a lot uh, for recommendations, but coming to your specific question uh, around what we can do with uh, ML and computer vision and building algorithms for media, we can actually do quite a lot. So in Netflix, we look at uh, media assets as big data because there is so much of information that is available uh, in those assets, right? And we can see a lot of uh, uh, efficiencies, uh, you know, right from the media supply chain as well as something that is customer facing that can happen in all of those areas. So to the effect, what we have done is that we have kind of uh, built a MapReduce-like platform for processing media assets where we have made it very easy for our uh, engineers to just focus on the algorithm that they want to do and not worry about any of the uh, uh, code that they have to write to run those algorithms at scale where a Docker application is their, uh, <coughs> a Docker container is their application. Uh, they just uh, figure out like, okay, I'm going to process, let's say, video files. I need scenes or I need uh, frames of video. Uh, and here is the map that I write for each one of those chunks and here is what I collect and they go about it. So we have uh, onboarded a platform that makes it easier for our people to <coughs> do a, a lot with uh, ML and computer vision. So some of the applications that I can talk about, I think we have already discussed here, we have the end credits, basically detecting text, text on text, uh, and making sure we can detect the start credits, the end credits, uh, even our quality assessment, the VMAP that I talked about, has a machine learning uh, at its base where there is it's trained with data uh, that people have looked at and it uses that to uh, work out the quality of the streams. And we are also doing things which were which is time consuming to do. For example, detecting uh, dead pixels or in kind image processing, image clustering. Uh, a lot of those use cases can be done. And we feel that uh, the platform that we have provided is, is just starting and is going to drive a lot of innovation within Netflix as to what we are doing. And 
uh, this also requires a lot of compute. So the corresponding uh, thing that uh, companies have to figure out is that how they're going to provide that kind of uh, compute at, uh, at scale, right? Uh, Netflix, we are on uh, EC2. So part of the work that my team had been doing in the last year and a half to roll out is also uh, use all of the Netflix reserved capacity that uh, is uh, available and services are scaled down at off-peak hours to drive that compute across the three regions to a lot of these processing. So in some sense, uh, we have made it very easy for our uh, for our engineers and algorithm specialists to be able to drive compute to whatever their use case, whether it could be R&D, uh, like uh, this kind of scene-based encoding innovations, or it could be just codec comparisons that we have done in the past. Uh, you know, for example, if somebody is wanting to do a research, getting up to five to six million compute hours is going to be very easy for them to do. So the associated problem that needs to be solved is also how to efficiently deliver a lot of uh, compute. But in terms of the opportunities or the innovation that is available, a lot can be done uh, using machine learning and computer vision. And it can meaningfully drive uh, better experiences for customers, both in terms of streaming quality, uh, the quality of the bit rate recommendations as a service, and more deep metadata about the video that can be used to drive experience. Okay, thank you. Uh, before we start our last question, uh, just a reminder that after, straight after this panel, uh, we've got Alex Dunlap from AWS Elemental uh, to talk about the new services that AWS Elemental launched uh, earlier today. So please remain in your seats. It's, it was not a change of session, it's a continuation of the session. Uh, so just to go on to the last question that we have, uh, we've got a few minutes left. So um, you mentioned about multi-region. So, Often customers use uh, multiple AWS regions, uh, typically for compliance reasons or, or maybe to get the application as close to the end users as possible. Could you tell me a little bit about the, your strategy of uh, running in across more than um, multiple AWS regions? And first, it goes to Winston. Yeah, so let me talk briefly about, uh, about what we did with Thursday Night Football. Again, going back to the point I mentioned earlier about being able to provide a highly reliable stream for our customers, the AWS multi-region architecture came into play for us. We clearly use that for the core encoding packaging, the live encoding live packaging services that, uh, that you probably are aware of from AWS Elemental. And uh, uh, you probably heard the announcement earlier today about uh, AWS Media Tailor Service, the new name, so I'm trying to learn the name which we actually use for our Thursday night football architecture, um, which is used for inserting advertisements in our live stream, real time, and it's personalized and customized based on where you are and who you are, and it's integrating with uh, third-party ad providers as well, including Amazon's own uh, media group for uh, delivering ads to our customers at scale. And obviously, ad stitching is complex, and ad stitching could reduce reliability, but uh, we were able to provide a pretty reliable stream and pretty seamless stream for our customers, primarily with a highly distributed architecture, globally distributed, because our ads that we show in Japan are different than the ads that you would get in New York or the ads that you would get in Las Vegas for the same stream. And the ad insertion do happen uh, in, in the globally distributed architecture in the different AWS regions using the AWS Media Tailor product. And, uh, um, having a distributed architecture definitely helps with 
providing a highly redundant and therefore a highly reliable stream. And uh, we have uh, used the, uh, the multi-region architecture for our live encoders and packages as well. And I think just having redundancy itself doesn't really solve the problem. You need to have a clear, well-defined, and a clear implement, clearly implemented architecture for failover. Just having redundancy on its own doesn't help. You need to be able to detect there is a problem. You need <clears> to have the right mechanism and the architecture and the system in place end-to-end, including our players and the clients, to be able to fail over seamlessly with less interrupt the customers. I think that is what you need to design, and that's what we had to do right from day one, where we had to think through, okay, we're gonna have multiple regions, but what happens when a region goes down and a customer is connected to that? You need to think through that right from day one, and what is the signal back to the player so that the player can switch over in a pretty seamless manner, thereby, providing, again, a clean experience, and the customer doesn't really lose the critical play in the game. And I would say the, the right run-end architecture using the multi-region uh, capabilities in conjunction with the right failover mechanisms that you would implement in your end-to-end architecture can actually go a long way to provide a very clean, clear, reliable stream for your customers. Okay, thank you. Finod? I think uh, Vincent pretty much touched upon it. Uh, Netflix, we are on Amazon, so we, our whole service runs on uh, Amazon, so we use uh, multi-region deployments. And it is not just availability, there is also failover. We do a lot of chaos engineering where we have the capability to direct traffic from one region to the other to make sure that we are immune to even region uh, failing so that we can continue to maintain the level of service that we do. Uh, at, from a, for the media processing perspective, uh, what has happened is that we, uh, in the last couple of years, have started using a lot of the compute that Netflix reserves globally, because we reserve for peak capacity, and there's a lot of capacity that we reserve. But since our services are scaled down, there are troughs that are created during the day where there is less watching happening and more compute instances are available. So we have set up a system where we can use those compute instances to drive a lot of the innovation or the media encoding work that we have done. So in some sense that we are using uh, Netflix's multi-region presence as, uh, for the media encoding perspective as a capacity boost so that we can go outside of our own reservations that we have done for media encoding uh, and specifically go after all the instances that are uh, available. And chaos engineering or failure engineering is a very integral part of how we do things at Netflix, and we have uh, innovated a lot in making sure that we have a, a highly available uh, service in the a global service in the club. Thank you, Rob. Yeah, so for, for Hulu, we're, um, we're not in the cloud completely for, for a lot of services. In fact, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> Uh, we only started to really deploy services in the cloud for the live service. Um, we manage multiple data centers in, in the U.S. We have, we think of it from a perspective of redundancy and reliability. So the two major deployments that we do have are one around repackaging of the, the video streams in live before we deliver to the end user. And here we're repackaging for HLS and Dash, applying DRM and doing a few things there. But it is a single region right now. And this is where I spoke of earlier, that we're looking at kind of creating more redundancy there. 
We also appreciate diversity. So we use multi-CDNs. We use multiple encoding partners for the live stuff. We use multiple transit providers, uh, single acquisition paths. Um, and we're, we're exploring it from a redundancy plus diversity point of view. Uh, the other large major deployment that we have in, in AWS right now is for the browse stack. And that's basically everything that's presented to you um, as, as an end user. And we manage um, one AWS region right now, and we have the other traffic coming from our two data centers, and we have that behind all um, of, of it. So basically, like we're, we're achieving the, the level of redundancy there uh, by using all three of those sources, uh, but we're really only in one, one region right now. Okay, thank you. Uh, Rob, Winston, Vinod, thank you very much for your time today. It's been brilliant, really enjoyed it. It's, it's an honor on behalf of AWS and the part of myself to, to ask you these questions. Um, for everyone, um, please uh, think, uh, congratulate and thank uh, our three panelists. Uh, still stay in your seats because we've got a, a second session. But uh, to the panelists, thank you very much uh, for today. Thank you, thank you. <laughs>
Um, unfortunately, though, in our view, the technology that is needed to make broadcast-grade video experience happen uh, is still more complex than what is needed. You can think of the pipeline run running from a capture device, a camera, a production truck, a TV studio, what have you, uh, all the way to the display. Um, customers need to um, worry about everything from ingest, how do I get data, video, how do I move data around, um, transcoding, how do I uh, convert to the various file f formats that are out there. Um, encoding, how do I um, you know, manage compression uh, in real time, uh, one second of video in for every second of video uh, that goes out. Um, origination, how do I package my video uh, in order to uh, reach multiple devices? Where do I store it from an origin perspective that uh, connects to my CDN? Uh, we heard several, you know, Winston talking about ad insertion, but uh, creating monetization opportunities. Um, these are the things that customers, if you talk to them, these are the things that they're spending their time on. Um, th these are problems that a uh, customer trying to do broadcast-grade video anywhere uh, is spending time, effort, uh, energy in solving. But for the most part, they're not the things that when you ask these same customers, what makes your business special, these aren't the things that they mention. When you ask customers what makes your business special, they tend to talk about their content, they tend to talk about their customers' viewing experiences. They tend to say, I want to create great video. I want to create great content. I want to monetize it. I don't want to, you know, it can be sports, it can be news, it can be entertainment, it can be, uh, you know, car marketing or corporate communications. It's not the undifferentiated heavy lifting, managing the infrastructure needed to deliver broadcast great video experiences. So that in, um, in a nutshell, is why we built AWS uh, Media Services. Um, we want anyone to be able to access the same broadcast-grade um, video infrastructure that powers um, many of the uh, customers you heard today. Um, without managing the underlying uh, heavy lifting of video infrastructure. So um, for those of you who don't know Elemental, uh, we started out as a software company. So I actually, I, I, I was working for Amazon. The company uh, Elemental started in Portland um, around the same time that AWS got started in, as Amazon. Um, but had a, uh, a Elemental got started with the idea of building software to find video. So at the time, the conventional wisdom was that if you wanted to do great video encoding, uh, you use specialized hardware. And um, Elemental said, hey, we think that we can build software that will let our customers be more flexible, um, let our customers uh, get better economics, let our customers get better uh, video quality than is possible with uh, hardware-based encoding. Um, we, uh, Amazon and uh, Amazon acquired AWS acquired Elemental about two years ago, and we've been working since acquisition uh, to create AWS services that remove all of that undifferentiated heavy lifting that I mentioned. So um, our vision is really that um, we can create video solutions that do three things. Um, first, let customers hit the reliability levels that they get um, or exceed the reliability levels that they expect for their customers. So we believe that the cloud 
and building solutions on uh, AWS media services will help our customers create more reliable uh, video experiences for their customers. Uh, second, um, this is a space that moves very fast. I think you heard uh, the rate uh, from the panelists today, the rate of technical change in video is uh, astronomical. Uh, customers' expectations are um, really that they'll be able to watch uh, anything on any device, anywhere, whenever they want. And we want to create infra infrastructure and services that allow our customers to be flexible, to be nimble, to adopt new technology um, in a way that we believe is only possible if you're building on, on the cloud. And then um, third, let customers focus. Um, really let customers uh, spend their time on the things that make their business special, on their content and their viewer experiences, not on the undifferentiated heavy lifting of managing video infrastructure. So uh, let's move into the second part of the presentation, um, so, uh, talking a little bit about the services that we've built. Um, let's start with Elemental Media Convert. So there are five services. AWS Elemental Media Convert is our file-based video encoding solution. Uh, so this is a solution that lets you um, encode uh, video on demand assets, so you store a, um, a high quality mezzanine file in your Amazon S3 bucket. Um, you use the AWS Elemental Media Convert API or management console in order to specify the video profile settings that you use for your video. Um, this will create a job, uh, the job will produce the outputs that you specify, those will be written to your um, uh, to your, the, AW, uh, sorry, the uh, Amazon S3 bucket that you specify. Um, the thing that this gives you is it gives you access to um, <coughs> codecs, formats, functionality, broadcast features um, with a AWS uh, interface. So if you're doing MXF, if you're trying to do a um, ProRes transcoding, if you're trying to do uh, captions or advanced audio, um, ad signalings, or a bunch of the other ancillary data associated with a VOD asset, all of this is present with a simple uh, AWS interface. AWS Elemental Media Live, this is a counterpart for live video, real-time video encoding. And um, really here what we've optimized for is reliability. Um, Live video, you just can't go black. That's the, um, uh, I think you heard uh, Winston talking about this in terms of the Thursday night football. Um, the ability to quickly, uh, sorry, reliably deliver video, live video to your customers is paramount. So with AWS Elemental Media Live, what we've done is um, automatically provisioned resources across multiple availability zones. You think in terms of channels, so you'll provision a channel and um, you can start and stop a channel using the APIs or using the management console. And behind the scenes, we're provisioning resources in multiple availability zones. We're monitoring those to make sure that the video is flowing successfully through them and um, giving your customers a very reliable, robust experience. AWS Elemental Media Package. This is a service for live video packaging and origination. Um, what we've done here is um, packaging, um, again, the panelists mentioned uh, a bunch of the uh, uh, packaging formats that they try to support. Uh, this allows you to take one uh, set of encodes, send it into media package, 
and um, we will do things like a repackage it for other formats, but also add on the fly uh, DRM uh, if you specify it. Um, we have a bunch of DVR-like functionality that we make available to you. So you, if you want to enable catch-up TV or startup TV experiences or a three-day, uh, we have a three-day content window so you can say, hey, I want to allow my customers to go back in time up to three days on a live stream, uh, you can configure that. Um, all in a simple um, uh, web services interface. Uh, AWS Elemental Media Store is video-optimized origin storage. Um, so you can think of uh, AWS Elemental Media Store as sitting between an encoder and a content delivery network. Um, we'll talk about a use case later on where you push content into uh, Media Store and then you use your CDN to deliver it. Um, it's all uh, optimized for low predictable latencies, uh, which is important for keeping video experiences consistent. Uh, the last one is uh, AWS Elemental Media Tailor. Uh, this is server-side ad insertion. Um, if, if you think about the trade-offs that we uh, used to have to make for um, ad-supported video, uh, you had client-side ad insertion, which worked really well from a targeting perspective. So you could show each customer a unique ad that was specifically picked by an ad decisioning service uh, for the particular viewer. Um, however, because you were doing it on the client side, the user experience wasn't always great. There were often just um, jarring experiences as video switched bit rates, switched uh, uh, encoding parameters, just didn't look smooth as it moved from uh, content into ads and then ads back into content. On the other hand, server-side ad insertion uh, worked great for delivering a seamless uh, stream to your customers. Um, uh, everything was encoded the same way, but you had to give up a bunch of the targeting. Um, we built AWS Elemental Media uh, Tailor in order to let customers avoid that choice. So we do the ad insertion on the on the server side. Each customer gets a unique, each viewer gets a unique manifest, so that they can have unique ads selected by your ad decisioning service. Um, but get that broadcast grade uh, quality that is consistent. Um, uh, for the viewer because you're doing it all on the server side. So um, all five of these products are available today. Uh, so you can go to the AWS management console and get started with them. Um, they all have simple pay-as-you-use pricing models. Um, so for AWS Media Convert, it's based on the content minute. Um, so um, each minute of output um, that you select will have a uh, price associated with it. So you only pay for what you actually use. Um, uh, AWS Elemental Media Live has a similar output minute-based pricing model. Um, AWS uh, Elemental Media Package has a, a, a gigabytes model, so we look at the gigabytes of content that gets ingested by the service and the gigabytes of content that gets originated and packaged by the service, so it's a, a volume of content uh, that's similar for um, AWS uh, Elemental Media Store. And then AWS Elemental Media Tailor uh, works um, on a ad insertion basis. So it, there is a cost for every thousand ads that are inserted into your video stream. So moving on to the third part of um, the talk here today, um, why, why are customers uh, choosing this? Um, why, you know, what have we heard from customers about why this is uh, um, uh, what, what is the value proposition here? 
Um, really, it comes down to the same three things that I mentioned. Customers want solutions that are reliable. Customers want solutions that are flexible. And customers want solutions that are um, allow them to focus, spend their time on what's important to their customers. So let's go through a couple of these um, examples. These are all customers who have been working with uh, AWS Elemental Media Services in our beta programs. Um, so the Pac-12 uh, network is an example of a customer who, uh, actually, sorry, before I go into this, um, you'll see a couple of themes coming out here. Um, the first theme is that different customers will use these com uh, services in different combinations. Um, we very much built these as building blocks. They aren't a monolithic application where uh, one size fits all. We recognize that that's just not realistic for video use cases. So what we've done is built these in a way that allow customers to um, organize them to meet the specifics of their use cases. Um, the second is some of these, uh, 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 virtually all of these actually, will have um, components inserted into workflows that existed before um, elemental media services were around. Um, some of those including, include ground workflows. Um, so we'll talk here about a customer Pac-12 Networks, who is interested in using Media Store as the uh, origin for uh, their content delivery networks. Um, so on the right, you see their display devices. They're using uh, CloudFront and uh, third-party CDNs as a, a CDN in this example. Um, Media Store would serve as the um, AWS Elemental Media Store would serve as the media optimized origination for uh, those content delivery networks. Um, they're using a uh, ground-based encoder, so an AWS Elemental Live ground encoder that pushes video fragments up to Media Store. Um, AWS Elemental Media Store then serves as the origin there, giving that consistent performance. Um, they talk about focus and flexibility as the benefits there. So they say uh, they're doing this to stay ahead of the technology requirements and keep our focus on the core capability of delivering great athletic experiences. Um, that's the focus that I talked about there. Uh, Winston spent a lot of time on this, um, uh, the Thursday night football example for um, Amazon Prime Video. Um, reliability is really the key thing here. Um, as he talked about, they have a, this is a very pro, high profile event uh, with a very unforgiving audience base. If people misplays, if there's buffering, if customers don't get to experience um, what is happening on the field uh, as it happens, um, they're um, you know, not, not satisfied. Um, media Taylor, AWS Elemental Media Taylor, um, sits at a very important spot in the workflow. We are serving a unique manifest to every customer uh, of, of Thursday Night Football. Um, so they have um, built an architecture that really over-indexes on reliability um, so that they're sure to give customers a reliable stream. Uh, Sinopolis, uh, for those of you who don't know, Sinopolis is a, a major, it's one of the world's uh, largest theater chains. Um, they're using, or they're uh, uh, looking at Elemental to help them uh, be more flexible. So um, they have a... Um, not just a chain of movie theaters, they also have an OTT brand called Click. Um, and they're increasingly moving into uh, live video. So not just uh, VOD, um, OTT uh, experiences, but also, um, also live. And um, 
AWS Elemental Media Services is giving them flexibility in order to try new business models um, in, while, um, like live and uh, without giving up on uh, what they call it resilience and, and quality, but it's really that reliability that, that we mentioned before. Um, they also talk about focus here, so focus on uh, innovating on new services. Uh, Fubo TV. Um, Fubo TV is a, sp a sports broadcaster, and uh, they're using AWS Elemental Media Tailor uh, in order to test new monetization st uh, s strategies. Um, they talk about how that they can launch new services in a matter of minutes without worrying about the, inf uh, the underlying infrastructure. So again, this is helping customers focus. This is helping them try new things, uh, spend time on what matters for their business and not the undifferentiated heavy lifting of managing video infrastructure. And one last year, Quello. Um, Quello is a technology platform that helps other video providers um, uh, with contribution and coding and monetization. Um, so they have a, a product called uh, Stadium, I think Watch Stadium uh, for college sports. And um, they, they want to bring that broadcast quality experience um, to uh, their products. Um, they, they've been using Media Tailor, again, to do broadcast level ad insertion for OTT experiences. Uh, so they were uh, um, very keen. We'd heard about frame accurate uh, ad insertion. Uh, this was very important to them. They wanted to make sure that they could do that, and Media Tailor has given them a way to do that. So um, this allows them to focus on running campaigns. Um, so they they're, uh, make it easy for content progr programmers to get a new service running and focus on their ads. Um, that's where they make money, as opposed to the undifferentiated heavy lifting of managing infrastructure. So hopefully with these examples, you'll see some themes. Um, we really feel that these services will help you build uh, video applications that are gonna be more reliable that are going to be more flexible, um, better adapt to the pace of change that is present in video, and um, uh, let you focus on making your business special. Um, today was really a um, very quick overview. Um, there's a lot of other sessions uh, at the course of reInvent that we hope you check, check out. Um, these will go into these services in more detail. Um, Media Tailor uh, and Media Convert are gonna be on Wednesday. Uh, Thursday, there's a deeper, I think the, that session may have moved actually. Uh, check your pro program. Um, but more than anything else, uh, try things out. Uh, these services are all available today. Uh, you can try them out in the management console, um, and we'd love to get your feedback. So thank you very much.